So the theme for tonight's talk is finding a true refuge from your mind. And I want to begin with a passage from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings, one of the discourses that the Buddha gave, which when I first read it, I, it brought a smile to my face because I realized, as I often do when I read the text, that things haven't changed for us very much, that we're actually dealing with the same things that the Buddha's practitioners and disciples were dealing with during the time that he was teaching. Of course, that isn't too much of a surprise because that's why the Dharma is so precious and so timeless because it's so applicable to who we are and the time that we live in now. So I call it the if-only lament. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, for the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desirable, agreeable things would increase. If only. And he goes on to say, yet although beings have this wish, unwished for, undesirable, disagreeable things seem to increase for them, And wished for, desired, agreeable things seem to diminish. Now, because what do you think is the reason for that? And I just really love that because it shows that whatever human beings are doing, they're not doing the right thing because they're not getting what they want, ultimately. And yet they... still do the same thing over and over again. And I, I, I wonder sometimes whether the Buddha actually said, what do you think is the reason for that kind of as, with tongue-in-cheek? You know, because it is rather obvious. So he goes on in that particular teaching, and he basically says that people don't know what things should be cultivated and followed, and what things should not be cultivated and followed. And sometimes the teachings are really made so simple for us. You know, he just points so directly to where our suffering arises from, where the, where, where the dukkha arises. And he gives a very interesting teaching on the four ways of undertaking things here. And I'll just say briefly what these are because he gives very interesting similes for each one. He says there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. He said this is like taking horrible-tasting poison. It's dukkha now and dukkha later. So basically, if we pursue these things, that's where we're going to get dukkha. Then the second way is this, he said, this way is pleasant now, but will ripen as pain in the future. And he says this is like taking sweet-tasting poison. It's sukha now, but it's still going to be dukkha, no matter how you look at it. 
The third is, says this way is painful now, but will ripen as pleasure in the future. And he says this is like taking horrible tasting medicine. It's dukkha now, but it will bring you sukha. It's medicine. It will heal, even though it tastes bad. It's something you should take, you should listen to and follow. And the fourth way is, this way is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. It's like taking sweet-tasting medicine. Sukha now and sukha later. This is what we like. <laughs> and it's still medicine, you know, it's, but it's sweet. It's, it's medicine that will heal us. So we take it. We follow that way. So our human predicament is that generally we don't know which way to follow because we're not so aware of the consequences of the things that we choose. And from a very early age, we are conditioned to actually take, using this very strong metaphor, of this sweet-tasting poison. Because basically, we're, we're told from a very early age in all different manners, of uh, ways, we're told this will be good for you, girls and boys. Listen to this. Follow this. Do this. And being young and not so wise, we listen and we follow. And we can see how even today as we're grown up, we're adults, that the culture is just feeding us this kind of it is a strong metaphor. It's, I'm just using the metaphor because the Buddha did, but this poison, because it's not going to bring us sukha. It's not going to bring us happiness. I want to read you, really, I think one of the most ultimate examples of this deception of what's going to bring us happiness. Um, things just keep getting more intense somehow, it seems. This, I found this in a newspaper article in U.S. Today this, this, this year. And the, it's just a, it was a tiny little, tiny little article when I was just skimming through the paper on an airplane. And the title was, The FAA, the FAA Seeks to Keep Billboards from Space. And it goes like this, the Federal Aviation Administration filed proposed regulations to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obtrusive advertising in zero gravity. The FAA says objects placed in orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time. For instance, outsized billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen without a telescope, the FAA said. Big and brighter advertisements also might hinder astronomers, they said. However, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce this existing law. 
So the next thing may be that we have billboards in space. You know, it just gets more and more extreme, more even beyond our imaginations of what's possible. And so therefore, and as we all know, or you wouldn't be here to try to overcome this predicament, we see, we find that our mind is perpetually searching for something, something outside of ourselves that we think is going to bring us some kind of completion or some kind of happiness, that somehow we are not complete in ourselves, that we need more and more things to feel this sense of wholeness, this sense of completion. And so this perpetuates the view that we need to become something more than we are, something else than what we are. We're on this treadmill of becoming, whether it's becoming better in our work or uh, in our meditation, somehow this kind of sense from the ego, from the sense of self, of building ourselves up again and again, possessing or wanting all these things around us to kind of give us some sense of security, some sense of uh, a holding, holding ourselves up. It's as if we're searching for some kind of refuge from this inner restlessness, this, this inner uh, insecurity that we feel from this um, m- misunderstanding about what's true. Not only do we seek things outside of ourselves, but as human beings, unlike animals, we actually have the capacity to be able to create compartments in our minds, compartments of the past and the present and the future. And we can actually go to these compartments as if they're some kind of holding space for us. And we can go there as some kind of escape to give us also some sense of refuge, some sense of security. We can go back into the past and we have this whole data bank of memories that can bring us a certain amount of comfort. The only difficulty is sometimes we kind of fall through the trap door and we land in a memory, memory we don't want to be landing in. But at least we attempt that we can potentially have some refuge. Or we'll, we'll go into the compartment of the future. And we can create fantasies and plans and ideas, which again can give us some sense of security or comfort until we realize that it doesn't really work for us. All it does is continue to perpetuate this sense of fear, this sense of insecurity and restlessness, because we haven't really resolved what the issue is. We will continually feel this sense of groundlessness or shakiness or this kind of unsatisfactoriness until we understand what is actually happening. There was a pop song, and I don't know for sure who sang it, but it was looking for love in all the wrong places. 
and maybe Tina Turner. You know, you know, it's kind of that, you know, looking in all the wrong places. So when we come to this kind of practice, we can really see directly the way the mind wants to slip off into some kind of imagined refuge, where this sense of me, this sense of I or how I take myself to be as a sense of self, can feel some sense of security. Whether we go off into the mind and the compartments of the mind, the past, even the present, imagining uh, even a, a, a different kind of present than we're actually having, not seeing so directly or so clearly, imagining a future, whether we slip off into wanting certain kind of experiences which give us a certain security when we're having good experiences or experiences that actually match our ideas of what's supposed to be happening here at the forest refuge. Then we say, oh yeah, and we can rest and we can feel more secure. It might be situations that we find ourselves slipping into or off to, situations like the food, perhaps finding refuge in, in the meal times. And, and, uh, and maybe there are certain ways through our, pa- uh, our patterning growing up that we have felt a lot of comfort through the food, or it fills something for us. And so we can see our mind slipping off towards the food. Or maybe rest. Maybe rest is a kind of refuge. Or for many people, taking cups of tea. I know this is one of my feelings of refuge. It's going off and sitting comfortably with a warm cup of tea in my hand. Not that that's wrong or that's bad. But yet here we can actually look and see what's the motivation? What's the intention? Is it something that we're, we're, we're moving away from in ourselves? Or is it actually something that is giving some upliftment and nourishment when we're feeling somewhat depleted or we don't have much capacity in that moment or that hour to go on with our practice? Or we may find ways we begin to take ownership around our things, whether it's our cushions and the way that we have our cushions set up or the place that we have our cushions, the clothes that we're wearing, um, the cups that we use, or whatever it is, the, our rooms, the way our rooms may start, might start to be very uh, cozy and comfortable. And again, that it's not, it's not wrong, but we look and see ways that, that the security, that sense of security starts to get established, even in a place like this, which is really quite austere in cultural, uh, when we compare it to the cultural uh, 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 things that we usually have and are involved with. But yet even here, we start to build up a way that we feel secure. This way that we take ownership and build up this sense of me, 
by holding on to aspects of our mind, identification with our mind, with our body, with the things around us. Building up this sense of I to have a familiar ground, to have a familiar sense around us so that we can feel this ease. When we start to see the way that the mind moves in taking ownership, it is truly remarkable when we actually can get a sense of the way the mind moves towards the object, whether it's a mind object or a thing, a a possession, or, or something that we want to possess, our mind, our body. It is a remarkable awareness to have. I'd like to tell you a story about well, I think it's the time where I saw this the most remarkably. And I was, had the honor and the good fortune to receive teachings in Kathmandu, Nepal, from uh, Tuku Ugin Rinpoche before he passed away uh, in the last uh, eight years or so, nine years. And there was a small group of us who were taking teachings with him over, over a period of about three days. And we'd go to his monastery and spend a few hours with him. And he was giving us Dharma teachings, beautiful Dharma teachings. And perhaps you know that when you visit Tibetan teachers, they have quite a lot of very beautiful things all around them all kinds of ornamentations, and they're sitting on platforms, and they have beautiful clothing and flowers and all kinds. It's a very, very rich and beautiful environment. And while we were there, he wanted, he was teaching us a teaching on clinging, on grasping, on taking ownership. And he, on his table, he had a teacup and a saucer that he would use for his tea. When it was his tea time and someone brought him tea, he would use this teacup and saucer. And so he lifted it up. He wanted to show, make a demonstration, and he lifted up the teacup and the saucer, and it was truly beautiful, exquisite, fine china, decorated very finely. And he and it was somewhat small, and he held it up in his hand. And he said that as, as he was holding it, he says, he said, the moment that the, and this was all translated, this was being translated, so I had a time to actually watch my experience that was happening. And he said, the moment that the thought arises that you like this or that you find it beautiful, is the moment of the arising of the craving. By the time it was even translated, and I got the gist of what he was saying, I was so far ahead of the craving. I was far into attachment. I was already thinking, oh, I'd love to have a teacup like that. That is such a beautiful teacup. I think I ought to drink tea from more beautiful china. I think that I ought to treat myself in that way and have beautiful things around me. And the whole kind of scenario was going through my mind. And then he said, 
when, you know, after it was translated and it got to me, even the thought is the beginning of the craving. It was as if I saw the whole thing in slow motion. Just see the whole movement of my mind going out to take that thing, to take ownership of it so that I could have that thing. Maybe not that thing particularly, but I could replicate that thing, you know, because I'm somewhat of a privileged uh, American, and so I have the resources to be able to replicate that sort of thing. And so I could just see this whole thing play out. And I got to the point where, after I heard what he said, in my mind, the next thing that started happening was I started to refute it. He's not right. That can't be true. Just the thought arising that I like that thing can't be craving in itself. And I really got a little resistant, you know, because I thought, no, you have to really, like, you know, really want it, you know, really have that whole kind of intense sort of movement out towards the object. And I was saying, no, no, the first thought couldn't be the craving. And I got into this argument in my mind because I in a way, I didn't want to be caught. I didn't want to own. I was even identified. There was, there was clinging on to the possibility that I could have that thought without being involved in the craving. But I saw what he meant. I really got what he meant because it wasn't just, I like that teacup. There was a, already a whole arising of momentum that was toppling me forward, that was moving me forward. My body was lifting up. I was moving forward with interest and curiosity. It was already taking formation. And I think it took me some time, though. It took some time, maybe some weeks, before I really allowed that insight to settle, before I really began to believe (laughs) that this great master (laughs) in Nepal was actually telling me the truth, you know, that um, maybe he had a deeper wisdom than I did. And slowly, slowly, that teaching settled in where I became much more aware, much more in tuned with the movement of that craving and how that movement would take me away from the sense of contentment that I already was experiencing here at home without having to move out towards anything, without having to, to, to grasp onto anything at all. And I could feel that kind of that, that shift of experience of being more fully settled, planted here, here in my totality, in my completeness, without having to move out, even in the tiniest little way. There's also an interesting experience that happened for a yogi who was sitting in an intensive month retreat at Spirit Rock last March. And she was coming into interviews with me, and I watched this 
scenario play out for her as well. Because, you know, we have these really remarkable, as I say, these remarkable experiences where we, something happens, some good karma, I suppose it is, you know, where some experience happens for us where we're able to see so clearly this way, this movement where the mind doesn't want to stay home. She had been sitting, actually, I think she was well into her second month. At Spirit Rock, people can do two months um, instead of, or one month. And she was sitting the two-month retreat. And at Spirit Rock in California, we have these, in March, particularly when the the rains are still coming, we have beautiful streams running through the property. And there are a lot of rocks around. And so people pick up rocks and make rock sculptures. And you ha- and maybe you've seen these kind of rock sculptures where people just, yeah, they do that here, where you just set up different kinds of rocks and balance them on top of each other, and big rocks and little rocks. And so she um, uh, was walking, doing her walking meditation. And you know how we're just, just minding our own business and we're doing our walking meditation. And then something she saw something out of her eye. There was a beautiful rock in the stream. And she got a little distracted because she decided that she wanted that rock for one of the rock sculptures. So she went and she took the rock and put it on the rock sculpture near where she did her walking meditation so that each day she could walk back and forth and be near this very, very beautiful rock. So a day or two went by, and she was really enjoying and loving this rock very much. And she went to do her walking meditation, and she discovered that the rock was gone. And she said to herself, my rock, somebody took my rock. And all this sense of ownership arose around her rock. Who could have taken it? Why would they have taken it? Wouldn't somebody have known to leave things alone? And she, when she came into the interview uh, because she was actually fretting about this. And she had been very settled and very calm and actually quite concentrated. And this was really creating a fair amount of agitation for her. And she started to realize how special she was making it. She had made it. And how attached that she got to it. And we talked about that and the interesting and the important aspect of that for her practice. And then she went back. And the next thing, the next day, I um, received a note from her. And it went like this. Dear Sharda, the rock tale continues. Enclosed is a note I found under the rock on the sculpture. So somebody had actually returned the rock and put a note under the rock. And this is the note that was left. Sorry, I should have known this was somebody's special rock. Thanks for the loan, rock napper. And so she said, I took the rock and 
took it back to the stream, placed it in the stream where it was before, asked the stream's forgiveness, and she felt all this gratitude to have had the opportunity to really see this whole scenario play out in her mind. And to, she said, and to glory in the ways of this universe. And so again, you know, through the conditions of the practice and the support of the, the stillness and the quiet to be able to see so clearly the movement of the mind, we can actually see this way of building up, ah, how something becomes so important or something becomes so special and how then it gives us a sense of some kind of ground or, or security where we can feel more ease or more calm in ourselves, or, or something where we can feel familiar. We say, yeah, this is mine. But because we're on retreat, because we're practitioners, we know that it doesn't work. We look more deeply, not only into the fact that this doesn't bring us satisfaction, but we see how we, by continuing to follow these kinds of ideas, these kinds of uh, situations, that we keep perpetuating a myth about reality that isn't true. There is nothing to hold on to. And yet, as we let go, what we find is that we move into more and more levels of uncertainty and insecurity about the way things are because there's really nowhere to go. There's nothing to reach out for that is going to give us this security. Things become more and more uncertain. We think we know something and then we find out that we don't know that reality isn't actually the way that we imagined it. This is a quote from Stephen Batchelor. As mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, experience becomes not only more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. The more deeply we know something in this way, the more deeply We don't know it. So even the knowing starts to crumble, starts to fall apart. Joseph Goldstein once used a metaphor for this kind of sense of not knowing, the sense of uncertainty. He used the example of if we were sitting in a train and we're sitting in a seat that is actually going facing backwards rather than forwards, the same direction that the train is going. But our seat is sitting backwards so that when we look out the window, what we're seeing is what's already gone by rather than what's coming. And in a similar way, that's the same with our mindfulness. It's almost like there's a little bit of a gap. Something arises and then we know it or we can see it. We can be mindful of it. But we, we just, we're constantly in this situation 
of the new thing coming, the next thing coming, the next thing coming. And so we're constantly having to let go. We're constantly having to deal with this reality that is not holding together. It's arising and then falling, arising, coming together and falling apart. And so we don't have, it seems, anywhere to really stand, any ground to stand on. And as we allow ourselves to feel this more and more, as practitioners, we realize that we don't have to resolve this uncertainty. We don't have to, we don't have to find a way to make it different. But rather, we allow ourselves to feel this insecurity, to feel the fear that may arise when we realize that there's nothing to hold on to, to tolerate the way things are coming together and breaking up. I think so much of our practice is expanding this capacity to tolerate the reality that we find ourselves in when we're no longer able to hold on to things or to even hold our reality together in the way that we we construct it, in the way that we configure it. And yet to tolerate this uncertainty requires a certain strength in our being. And certainly at first this strength comes from the ego. We call it ego strength. And that's why people need a certain ego strength to even come into the practice, to be faced with the truth of the way things are. The ego already has to have a certain functionality, a certain health to it, in order to to look more deeply into the way things are. But as we keep looking, and we even we're looking into what configures, what constructs the sense of self or ego, that too starts, we need to let go of that as well. We see that even that, or the strength that we may have found from that, is not substantial, is not stable. And yet there's still strength. It's not that the strength dissolves, that we don't have the capacity. The strength that we feel almost seems to come from somewhere else in our being. That which holds us up, that which gives us that sense of support or that sense of comfort that strength that perhaps we may even say is inherent in our consciousness itself, inherent in our being itself. And this strength gives us a sense of ground. It gives us a sense that there is some foundation that we can stand on, something that is reliable, dependable, even though we may not be able to find it or to say this is it or to make it into any kind of an it, and yet the experience still seems real for us. We feel strong. We feel capable. We have resources 
that we can draw on in our being without having to go back to the configuration of this sense of self. But when we're not in touch with this strength, we can feel a loss of support, the loss of our resources, and we don't know where to look. And we can so easily then forget that sense of wholeness or or completeness that we're beginning to touch in ourselves and then once again look outward, go outside to the things, to the things of this world for some kind of security. We fall back into the restlessness and the insecurity. We might say another way of talking about moving from this uncertainty or insecurity into a place of strength and capacity is to talk in terms of safety. Because when we feel secure, we feel safe. And so we seek things that are going to give us this sense of comfort, this sense of ease, this sense of safety. Even in our practice, in the Buddhist teachings, there's this sense of safety as being important. In the metta phrases, we even have a phrase where we invoke this sense of safety, where we say, may I be safe from inner and outer harm. Or may you be safe from inner and outer harm. Because this sense of safety is so important so that we can continue to find a refuge, find a place to sink into where we can feel more trusting, more at ease, more at home. Even here on retreat, all the conditions here are provided for you so that you feel safe and you feel supported and support, supportive so, so, that, so that everything here allows you to feel more a sense of comfort for this relaxation, for this sense of, sense of ease to deepen in yourself. So what does it mean to be safe from harm? Outwardly, we, we create this environment where we feel safe, both here when we're practicing, but at, when we're outside as well, as much as possible, we create an environment of security and safety as much as we can. We're careful with our speech and with our actions so that we're not doing things that, uh, unskillfully or heedlessly or creating uh, unsafe conditions for ourselves or for our families or for the environment. But ultimately, we need to create an inner environment of safety. And that's what happens in our practice, which means to be safe from the disturbances of our own mind, from the greed, from the hatred, from the confusion. The Buddha said, Whatever an enemy might do to an enemy or a foe to a foe, 
the ill-directed mind can do to you even worse. And we know this. We know, in fact, we need to protect ourselves from our own mind. And the practices, the, everything within the tradition creates this form of protection so that we learn how to protect ourselves from the forces within our own mind. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, on one of the retreats I was sitting with uh, him on, he, he just kind of used this, he just kind of said, it wasn't, he just kind of dropped this line where he was just saying to us, he said, don't be afraid of yourself. Don't be afraid of yourself. And there was some way he said it in the moment where I just kind of thought about it for a second and I thought, what does that mean, to be afraid of myself? I'm not afraid of myself. I'm afraid of everybody else. I'm not afraid of myself. You know, this is where I go for my refuge. And then the more that I thought about what he actually meant, I realized that there's a lot of fear from my own mind and what might happen within my own mind. And it's a particular kind of fear. It's a fear that arises from a an alienation from myself. When I, when I split off from myself or I slip off towards something else that I think is going to complete me or some way that I fragment off from my experience and I say it's not good enough or I reject myself or I compare myself or judge myself in some way, that this is This is a way of creating this fragmentation, this alienation. And it creates the fear, it creates the insecurity, it creates the restlessness because I've lost connection with my true home, with my true refuge. Just the way I did when I slipped off towards that cup, just like, oh yeah, that will do it for me. When I reject this natural home, I'm not trusting that I can let go into, I can rest into right where I am. If I reject my natural home, then I don't know who I am. I don't trust my resources. I don't trust my own capacity for awakening, for I don't trust my own Buddha nature and the resources that arise from there. I don't feel safe in my own skin. And this fragmentation can take the, pl- take the form of the being the inner critic or the taskmaster or the dictator. The way that we build up stories that take on a truth or a reality that gets believed in, and then we're disconnected. We're disconnected once again from the wholeness of who we are and the totality of who we are in any given moment. When this reality builds up, this is our reality. We don't know there's any other reality. And from this place, the whole world can feel threatening and alienating. 
we feel very unsafe, unprotected. We lose our refuge. This is from a quote from Nisargadatta, the Indian sage, great master. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, he says, resolutely. So it's the Dharma that brings us back home, that orients us back home to our true refuge, to our true protection. Here on this retreat, we take the refuges twice a week so that we are reminded where our true refuge is, taking refuge in the Buddha and our own Buddha nature in our awake nature that is already here, that we are, taking refuge in the Dharma as our home and the ways, the laws of nature, taking refuge in the Sangha, this community, the community of like-minded people and all the noble ones who have gone before us. We have all of the methods and techniques which orient us back to here, back to now, to this present moment, back to wholeness, where we can reintegrate the fragmentation, where we can come back together, come back into wholeness again. We have our foundation practice of compassion, where we hold ourselves, in compassionate awareness, like a mother holds her only child. We learn this kind of embrace, this kind of holding where we feel safe. We can rest. We can feel comfort and at ease. We have our metta practice, which is a foundation practice in our tradition, which was taught to monks and nuns as a protection as a practice of protection. By cultivating friendliness to all beings and all things, this brings us a sense of safety, a sense of security. As more friendliness grows towards all things, we feel less afraid. We feel more secure. And I'm reminded of the famous quote from Rilke, which goes like this, and probably many of you have heard, perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. 
bringing everything back into the arms of holding, which is the function of awareness, to embrace, to hold all things here, now, in this moment, where we can feel this sense of security. We may not feel this deep sense that comes when there's full awakening, but we can even hold the insecurity in this embrace. We can hold the fear. We can hold the restlessness because when we do, we are back in wholeness. We're not split off. We're not fragmented from our experience. As we let go of more and more clinging and identification with the conditions of this mind and this body, the more that we move from the known and the familiar into the unknown, that which is less familiar. And we enter into a more true relationship with ourselves. And as we continue to let go in this very profound way, we touch that which is unconditioned, that is not conditioned by the things of this world. We touch that which is the unborn, the undying, the deathless, our awakened nature, which is the ultimate protection from harm and the ultimate refuge, the ground of our being our protection from inner and outer harm, our true home. I'll end with this one poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-Israeli-American poet. She has many poems that uh, speak to me in the practice. It's called The Song. From somewhere, a calm musical note arrives. You balance it on your tongue, a single ripe grape till your whole body glistens. In the space between breaths, you apply it to any wound, and the wound heals. Soon the nights will lengthen. You will lean into the year, humming like a saw, You will fill the lamps with kerosene, knowing somewhere a line breaks, a city goes black, people dig for candles in the bottom drawer. You will be ready. You will use the song like a match. It will fill your rooms, opening rooms of its own, so you sing, I did not know my house was this large. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.